if you live and work in New York, um, inevitably you're going to fly into the city at night. It's just it's bound to happen. Yes. And you and 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 it doesn't matter if you fly into LaGuardia or JFK or Newark. You fly in low. You fly in over buildings, and it's a little scary. And when I moved to the city for the job in 2004, everyone was still a little spooked. You fly by the Manhattan skyline, and if you were on the right side of the plane, there was no way to not look at the pit. You were looking mm -hmm. at you were looking at Ground Zero, which really didn't have any construction in it until around 2009-2010. So, you know, we started. I I just started becoming just fixated, fascinated, like most people, that the plane would get all silent. You would be looking down at ground zero and it would be nighttime. And I and I think that was one of the first things that really locked me into Zodiac, strangely enough, because people talk about Zodiac's famous scene with the Trans-America Pyramid being constructed. Um, but for me, I think the more significant moment is, is it comes about 24 minutes into the film and you see where it's nighttime we're floating over the city and we float over the pit. We float over the pit where the Trans-America Pyramid is going to be built. It's 1969 and you hear, uh, there's a radio announcer, he's talking about curfews and he's talking about different counties that curfews are in effect. And he says, please everyone stay safe. And there was just simply no way to see that scene and to not feel like it had a sort of a resonance with what, with what was going on at the time. And I know that Fincher himself has sort of pushed away from September 11th, um, you know, intentionality regarding his film, which is fine. All he has to be is a genius artist. That's enough. That's plenty, actually. I don't, he doesn't have to be the best interpreter of his own art, but I really do think that um, what really grabbed me about the film, just first and foremost, by way of that anecdote is it feels like it's about a city that's terrorized by a phantom yes. and a, a ghost that's literally taking people's liter liberties away, uh, literally telling people to stay at their homes and their curfews. People are living in fear in San Francisco. And I mean, it just, it, it really felt to me like one of the first films that had a real sense of the Bush years. Yeah. When I saw Zodiac, I said, this is a film that's really about right now and the obsession this was, of course, before Osama bin Laden was 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 captured and killed. And, and did you hear Joe Biden's speech just this week, where he was talking about we have to end this this cycle, and you know the we have to end the forever war. I mean, that could have been spoken by like Dave Toskey's wife. Like, and and it, it's it's delivered with that compassion of like. See how see how we're all just being evacuated and our souls are just being sucked out of us. It's like maybe we could stop this. Maybe. maybe we could stop this. And I don't I don't need my art to be reflective of the politics, although in, invariably it is. But I did find a lot of articulation of that kind of free floating fear that I was feeling mm. in the two thousands. It, it was really beautifully expressed in Zodiac. The idea of an obsession that takes you nowhere, um, that's both comforting and a bit of a dead end or a Mobius strip. And the idea that we could have mainstream art made by studios that would articulate that even ob obliquely was I thought a sign of real mastery on Fincher's part.
Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac, adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by writer James Vanderbilt. The film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was former long-running editor of Time Out New York, editor, critic, and writer for hire with bylines at the New York Times, Sight and Sound, Empire, a Zodiac true believer, the returning Joshua Rothkopf. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinema deep dives. I also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with an exclusive weekly rum and rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as the links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible artist Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed, are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me today to swill Aquavelvas and unpack the incongruity of Zodiac's behavior are online movie writing veteran, Moriarty at Ain't It Cool, the founder of HitFix, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary Drew McQueenie. Well, and everybody who gets pulled into the, the, the proximity of this case catches that same madness. And returning screenwriter of Zodiac, James Vanderbilt, a writer, an actor, and star of Zodiac, Donald Logue, filmmaker and screenwriter of Rounders, The Girlfriend Experience, Ocean's 13, and co-creator and showrunner of Billions, friend of the show, Brian Koppelman, host of the Prog Save America podcast, the creator of A Year with Women and Noir Vember, Mariah Gates, post-production wrangler, writer at the film stage, and producer of the B-Side podcast, Connor O'Donnell, and his co-host on the B-Side podcast, co-founder of the film stage and filmmaker, Dan Mecca, as well as contributing editor for Nerdist, Lindsay Romain. This is the ninth episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Taurus, part one. In this scene, we listen to two Zodiac letters being narrated and find ourselves being asked, can we ever take a break from this case to live our lives? Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This episode continually reinforces that the police and those very close to the case find that the more they know about the Zodiac, the more certain they are that he's an agent of chaos and likely a pathetic, small, desperate, and quite lucky man. So... When I think of tearing down a mythical, iconic, super genius facade to reveal a mentally ill, pathetic, circumstantially lucky antagonist, there's only one possible thematic title for this show, and that is Joker. And now, let's get to the scene. So I shall change my way of collecting slaves. I shall no longer announce to anyone when I commit my murders, they shall look like routine robberies, killings of anger, and a few fake accidents, etc. The police shall never catch me because I have been too clever for them. I look like the description passed out only when I do my thing. The rest of the time I look entirely different. I shall not tell you what my disguise... An elevator dings open and the perennially distracted and often late Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, 
walks into a Twilight Zone San Francisco Chronicle newsroom. The usual hum of journalists and the cicada roar of rotary phone rings are gone. Just as Graysmith looks up from his paper, he realizes that all but a handful of the journalists are not on the floor, but instead are flocking to the boardroom. The steady projection of John Terry's authoritative voice as Chronicle publisher Charles Theriot is reading something aloud. The world breaks through to Graysmith like a dawn. He speeds up to join in. Disguise consists of when I kill. As of yet, I have left no fingerprints behind me, contrary to what the police say. I wear transparent fingertips. All it is is two coats of airplane cement coated on my fingertips. I enjoy. Theriot is positioned like a judge, and Toski and Armstrong and another important yet unknown representative sit in front row seats. Armstrong is dutiful and patient. Toski's stare into the middle distance conveys his frustration. Add another visit to the Chronicle and another performance of a Zodiac letter. It's slower and more pomp than he believes it deserves. It's only when a factoid about the Zodiac's use of fake fingertips does Toski's focus sharpen, nodding at a detail that would explain the once inexplicable lack of prints at the original crime scene. Graysmith takes his perch behind Avery, mirroring the same unassuming position that his son did when he wanted to see the Zodiac's television performance in the previous scene. As the camera pivots behind Armstrong and Toski, the Zodiac's writings begin to taunt the police. The editors beside Theriot are scrutinizing the reactions to the barbs closely. When the camera repositions to face Toski and Armstrong, you can track Avery's reactions to the letter too, grinning at the formality of this mad sermon. I enjoy needling the blue pigs. Hey, blue pig, I was in the park, you were using fire trucks to mask the sound of your cruising prowl cars. Hey pig, doesn't it rile you up to have your nose rubbed in your boo-boos? If you cops think I'm going to take on a bus the way I stated I was, you deserve to have holes in your heads. Toski smiles knowingly as the Zodiac admits that the threats that pushed his antics into omnipresence, the threats to shoot schoolchildren, were in fact another terror tactic create investigative disarray. Toski isn't buying it. Your heads. <clears throat> and you need to look at this. <clears throat> one bag of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, one gallon of stove oil, you dump a few bags of gravel on top. It's a bomb. Okay, we gotta call the army and see if this science experiment could actually work. Another cipher. When did these arrive? They arrived this morning. Are you planning to pump? We should have a drink. As the Zodiac's latest explosive threat materializes, Toski takes the most logical and skeptical tact, asking to confirm if what the Zodiac has put down in the letter is even possible. And it's in that mention of a second cipher that Avery decides it's time to confirm how this curious cartoonist colleague predicted the Zodiac's behavior. Before we jump in and get neck deep in Aqua Velva, here's screenwriter James Vanderbilt on pitching the film to Fincher and how the original drafts brought Graysmith and Toski together sooner. It's funny, you know, I, I went back recently and looked at, I dug out the first draft and I was oh sort God. of, 
and I was sort of interested, and I'm happy to share it with you, by the way, too, if you want to see it. But it's, I would it's, love to. <laughs> there was stuff I was surprised was always in it that I had thought, oh, that must have come out of working with with David later. And then there was other stuff that I was certain had been in it that wasn't. So it was a really sort of interesting evolution. But the structure of it was largely the same, except Toski and Graysmith met earlier because I was very... I loved the idea of these parallel stories being told, but I was nervous just from a Hollywood place of, can you really go 90 minutes without your main characters meeting? Yes. Um, and and there were other things too. The, re the resolution was a little different. It was a, a more of a sort of a summation of the case against Arthur Lee Allen it was done in a different way um, at the end of the first draft. But but so I wrote it and and one of the things I did, which was what Graysmith did in his book, is I used Graysmith's pseudonyms for stuff. In the book, it's um, Arthur Lee Allen's called Robert Hall Star, and there are a couple other ones in there. And I finished the draft and 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 Mike Medavoy, who ran the company and Brad both liked it and you know thought we we had something and so they wanted to go to directors. And I mean Fincher's name was sort of right there. I mean it was but my perspective on it was going to be like, he's going to pass. We were talking to David, I think, in, we started shooting in 2005. So we started talking to David in maybe, I want to call it 2002, 2003. Yeah. So, yeah. so we had this, I, I assumed he would say no, because it is that Hollywood thing where the person they always want to go to has just done that thing, which is why they don't want to do it again. Um, <laughs> and what I didn't know was that he'd grown up in the Bay Area. And so he had been one of those kids on those buses that were followed by helicopters when the Zodiac said he'd shoot out the... Uh... He'd shoot out the front tires and then pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. That's what Fincher captures here. Urgency and obligation. Frustration and fixation. Leaving no stone unturned and the mileage of the labor of moving every single pebble. <sighs> Time for a drink. We should have a drink. Thank you. So tell me about yourself. You married? Uh, divorced, two kids. What do you do for fun? I love to read. Um, I enjoy books. Those are the same things. Why you been going through my trash? Come back to that. I didn't know he was going to send another code. I just guessed. Just guessed. The first one seemed too easy. This can no longer be ignored. What is that you're drinking? It's an aqua velva. Who wouldn't make fun of it if you tried it? Here's Drew McQueenie on all the ways that Zodiac does your homework for you and Connor O'Donnell expanding to talk about the miraculous feat that is the Zodiac structure and screenplay and techniques of disseminating information. It's interesting that you did all the President's Men before this because I think Pecula was very good at this. Oh, uh, very. And, and all the President's Men is staggeringly brilliant at how it textures in all the homework you have to do to even understand what's happening in the film. You know, I showed all the president's men to my oldest son and he got it. He got it as just a thriller and as a movie and all the information you need is there. Even if you don't get the historical context ahead of time and he's done enough reading that he kind of knew what he was getting into, but the movie does it for you. 
Yes. Zodiac's the same way. I think I think ultimately it is one experience if you've read a lot on this subject and you realize, oh my God, look at all the work he's doing. Look at how well he's doing this. But it's another experience completely if you don't have any of that walking in. And what helps is the casting of Downey, the casting of Ruffalo, the casting of uh, Gyllenhaal, because they manage to make all of this human and involving and it feels like behavior, not like exposition. Yes. And Downey in particular does super heroic work at just getting all the information over the transom and always making it feel like you're entertained watching it. <laughs> yes. Like somehow he manages to be Robert Downey Jr. at full Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> even while he's basically just laying info out for you in scene after scene. What I love about about the movie, and I didn't actually, I, I watched it, rewatched it today before we started recording. And the structure of the movie is sort of literally on a fulcrum that is held up by John Carroll Lynch, right? It's like there's the movie before he appears and then there's the movie after he appears, right? Yeah. And the way everything's laid out for you is this wonderful madness where Fincher doesn't try to construct a whodunit. He doesn't try. I mean, he like there are little things like the Rick Marshall thing comes up later. And so there are little maybe, you know, things to throw, you know, things that are thrown in to gum up the works that um, that come up. But it's not really a whodunit. It's sort of this like, here's all the evidence we're basically pretty sure it's this guy <laughs> and everybody who seems to be you know maybe people who are very good at their jobs but trapped in sort of incompetent institutions so to speak are just losing their minds because it's right there and they along with the audience as the movie goes on are just you sort of salivate over it right because you're just you know, and it, it gets to this point where the movie's paced in such a wonderful way where the, the sort of pre-John Carroll Lynch half just moves at such an impressive clip. It's a series of montages and details. And obviously, you know, if you're if you're in it for the genre of it all, you have the, you know, the, the murder scenes that kind of spice that whole first half of the movie up. And then afterwards, you know, you basically, a after that interrogation scene with John Carroll Lynch, you basically then have this, uh, and you've, you've said this to some of your other, your other people who have spoke on this show so far, but like this notion of like picking up the pieces of, of, of sort of this collateral damage that's been created. I, I, it's, a, it's this miracle of like, of tone and structure that crafts what I think a lesser filmmaker would feel more compelled to like either answer for you or, or maneuver everything in a way where it feels like it has some sort of um, satisfactory uh, conclusion, whether that's, you know, good triumphing over evil or evil definitively sort of getting away with it or whatever. Um, and he doesn't, do that i think he has enough respect for the audience to not do that and sort of say no i and and you know trust in himself and his crew and everybody that's putting their work into this movie that like they know that what they're putting out there is sort of satisfying enough on its own merits that that he doesn't need to sort of 
commit or pivot to something salacious, uh, but fictionalized in order to kind of solve the mystery of it all. That said, there are other things like the, you know, and Dan and I spoke a little bit about this off mic, but there are other things like the treatment of the Paul Avery character, right, yeah. for instance, which isn't necessarily as true life as the, as the movie presents it. But I think that's the other nature of, of Fincher where it's this thing of, you know, kind of who cares like it's not uh it was just, just this thing of he he knows what works from a story perspective right come back to that i didn't know he was going to send another code i just guessed just guessed the first one seemed too easy this can no longer be ignored what is that you're drinking it's an aqua velva i wouldn't make fun of it if you tried it Avery lights a cigarette, Graysmith orders a teal, fruit and umbrella topped cocktail, one that does not even look like it could be purchased from Morty's. And he begins to get to know the person whose only connection he has so far is an infatuation with a demon possessing San Francisco. This is by far one of the most hilarious and essential scenes in this oppressive movie. The beauty of the scene is in the unanswered questions. Why are you going through my trash? Consonant? Why are you so into this? What's your angle? Therein lies the relatable quandary of Graysmith. There's no prize for this pursuit, yet. There's no metric for success he's defined. But Avery's been in this business long enough to have encountered those with the angle. He's asking almost knowing that there is no answer. And he's also asking with the truth serum of a wall of aquavelvas. And speaking of aquavelvas, here's Connor O'Donnell and Dan Mecker and I talking about aquavelvas. The aqua velva scene oh, is right. another when he's like he's like this can no longer be what, are you <laughs> what is this thing? And, and the beauty of the performance the Downey Jr. performance is uh, Jill Hall's like you would knock it if you tried it da 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 whatever and then and then um, Downey Jr. takes the drink looks around the bar because it's like the local warring hole as if to be like I hope no one's watching me this is a blue drink <laughs> and then he like does the sip without the straw. And then he looks at him, and then the beautiful cut, right, punchline cut. Yeah. I'm just having 45. And I will tell you, me and my wife have made aqua velvas, and they are very delicious. But who actually cracked the code? A married couple who like puzzles. So what's that tell us about the Zodiac? He's no expert. Right, it's just a simple substitution code, like the one that we used to do as Boy Scouts. A is one. B is two. We were no Boy Scouts, Robert. Well, it's not that hard. You just gotta know where to start, though. In the first cipher. You actually carry that around with you? Why? No reason. What's the now, I can't be sure, but every time I watch this scene, it has a comedic echo that rings in my head. Let's see if I can get it stuck in yours. From Adam Sandler's 1996 classic, Happy Gilmore. Hey. I'll make you a bet. Do you always carry a puck around? Yeah. In the first cipher. You actually carry that around with you? Why? No reason. What's the most common double consonant in the English language? Consonant? The double L. Double L. And what's the one word that we know that he'll use in here at least once? Kill. Right, kill. So the hardens start looking for double symbols, which they find here, here, and here, each with the same two symbols preceding them. 
So now they've got a repeating four-letter word ending with two symbols that they assume stand for L. Since I think the whole word is kill. And you got the K, you got your I, and you're on your way. But how do you go from A is one and B is two to figuring out this whole cut? Well, same way I did. You go to the library. Here's a great Lindsay Romain on that impulse to chasing things down rabbit holes. There is something really like almost soothing about, uh, yeah, a, a movie like this because it's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, I don't even know how to completely nail it. But <laughs> I did a better job of being able to enunciate. But I think another thing for me that like I really latched onto is that I was this movie came out when I was eighteen, I believe, or about to be eighteen, and so. Um, I was, you know, on the precipice of like going to college and really like deciding what I wanted to get into. And I was, so I was really, I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I was really obsessed with movies about journalists. And so I think that really fed into a lot of my interest too. And I was, I really relate to the Robert Graysmith character because that is one of my, like, I, I notice it even shows up in my work now. One of my favorite things to do is like decode some kind of mystery, even if it's something <laughs> like, really arbitrary like you know like piecing together like scenes from a movie trailer trying to figure out what the plot is like i love something like that i love a puzzle and it's something that comes out in my writing a lot too i was obsessed to take it back to manson like before once upon a time in hollywood came out and we didn't know much about like will this be like a retelling of you know we, we didn't know what that movie was going to be and yeah. so i was obsessed with trying to like figure, <laughs> figure it out, out. Yeah, yeah. So if you look back at some of my pieces from then, it's literally like a yarn wall. I was like, okay, <laughs> this detail and this set photo and this thing and that. And so I'm just somebody who really like loves to do that. Yeah, I'm really prone to like a rabbit hole over something. And so I, so a movie that's really about that, like about somebody who's obsessed with doing that kind of thing that I also love to do, uh, is really appealing to me. And I really related to that character, and I still do. Um, I, yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't do the kind of work that <laughs> that you're doing in this film. I'm not actually like doing anything about real cases or anything, but. Um, yeah just that like obsession like i've been that person staying up till four in the morning like pouring over a note at the expense and to the annoyance of people (laughs) (laughs) double l well and what's the one word that we know that he'll use in here at least once kill right kill so the hardens start looking for double symbols which they find here here and here each with the same two symbols preceding them so now they've got a repeating four-letter word ending with two symbols that they assume stand for L. Since I think the whole word is kill. And you got the K, you got your I, and you're on your way. But how do you go from A is one and B is two to figuring out this whole cut? Well, same way I did. You go to the library. In this book, the author presents a very simple substitution code in the preface. Eight of the 26 symbols that he suggests are found in this cipher. But there are non-letter symbols, because there's all these medieval ones. I thought they looked medieval, too. But then I found a code written in the Middle Ages. Guess what it's called? The Zodiac Alphabet. Jesus. What do you want out of us? What? What's your angle? This is good business for everyone but you. How do you mean business? Watching this film and scene again, the staging, the intimacy, the assessment of facts, techniques, and theories now feels like groundwork. It is a signpost between the naive, obsessive library nerd whose lack of street smarts make him deeply endearing and that frazzled, burnout, singularly obsessed man 
who dedicates his life to chasing a shadow. This tipsy scene between Avery and Graysmith is a mirror to the final climactic diner scene with Toski and Graysmith. In this scene, empty aqua velvets need to be cleared for these men to see one another, and what makes them tick. In the later concluding sequence, salt shakers and ketchup can be imbued with decades of tireless pursuit, with experience, with revelations. Here's Mariah Gates on the incredible cohesion between the elements that make this film work, and then we hear from James Vanderbilt, the writer of Zodiac, on the fusion of exposition and character. Yeah, I think I think this film balances it the best of all his films as well. Um, yes. In my opinion, this is his most finely crafted film. Great. I know that I know that people like you know everyone has their favorites, what have you. I I think this one is perfectly calibrated. There is not a misstep anywhere in it, and part of that is. The, the way he lets these characters just breathe and feel real and um, I don't know I love everything about it I, I um, never actually did go to Washington and Terry I'm thinking about San Francisco again um, because he you know he says that um, Toski goes back there every, every year. year he went there every and year until he was I was five. I was gonna go at one point um, just to see like would he be there and and I didn't and I kind of regret that. You know, it's sort of hard to be like, for me, it's weird to sort of sit around and talk about, oh, that scene I wrote, which is so good. So that's an odd ex- experience for me. The, but I do, I, what I will say is I love the, first of all, I just love the fact that it works because I was never, I'm, when you're, when you're sort of coming up as a screenwriter, you're sort of taught that exposition is bad yes. and that you got to get out of the way and it's not, nobody's interested in exposition. And I don't always agree with that. And I sort of love that this movie is entirely exposition. It yeah. is 90% of it is facts and this and this guy at this time and this date. And so I love that the center can hold with something like that. Cut to the Toski home. Hey, come to bed. I'll be up in a minute. I need to make a phone call. There's not many basements in California. Basement for future use. That's right. I'll have Vallejo and uh, Napa check with their city planners. Get some sleep. Uh, yeah, sure. Mrs. Toski, Jundai, and Raphael is picking up the last of her children's clothes, and she sees her husband stand up from the dining table and head towards the phone. It's not obvious, but there's a clear signal missed, a promise to be brief, to find a moment of comfort and intimacy. Even his partner Armstrong is wishing him a recovery sleep in vain. Here's Brian Koppelman on Mark Ruffalo, June Day and Raphael's Mrs. Toski, and the refusal to let yourself be loved. But also the moment when, and listen also the moment when she invites him to bed. And Fincher doesn't overplay that moment when she invites her husband to bed, right? He doesn't overplay it. He doesn't make it overtly about sex. But he, she looks at him and she says, come to bed. And he says, I will, I got to do this call. And he makes the call and she walks up the stairs and there's, he just lingers, the filmmaker just lingers for a moment. He doesn't go down her body, not salacious at all. He just lingers for a moment. 
And it's this moment, there are little moments when each of these characters could kind of save themselves. And Toski could save himself in that moment, right? Instead, he smokes the cigar, the mini cigarette cigar thing, because he hangs up. So the phone call's fine, right? He calls Anthony Edwards, and then he could have gone upstairs. But he doesn't. He resists the call to domesticity, to love, to connection, to warmth. And he stays, but not in the way that, not in the, in the way uh, that Pacino does, where it's about just naked ambition. It's different. Uh, it's about proving something about who he is to himself. It's about, you know, that, that's the other thing, which is um, you never get the sense in heat other than with the, the, the mother of the sex worker that Wayne Grove kills. And even then, you, you rarely get the sense that Pacino, that Pacino's character is emotionally connected, let's say, to the security guards. He's made himself turn off to it. I mean, he talks about the dream with De Niro, but, and I believe the dream, but essentially, he's competing. He has to win. He has to think better than the other guys. Ruffalo, and look, that's part of it is the difference between an actor like Pacino and an actor like Ruffalo. They're, they're, they rev at different speeds, but Ruffalo cares. And even in that caring, he loses his humanity. You would think it would give him more humanity, but he loses his humanity in the- He's, he's a guy who's driving, he's driving back to the scene on the anniversary saying, happy birthday, Bill. You know, yeah, happy birthday. It's, it's, it's haunting him. And in the same, like Vincent's got the same haunt, but he turns that into a competition. It's but like, Vincent no longer has the, this is what I guess what I'd say. Vincent, when we meet Vincent, Hannah, Vincent is long past being a human being who can have his feelings hurt by anybody. <laughs> yes, yes. He can empathize with his stepdaughter, but he can't have his feelings hurt. Whereas Toski, David Toski, when he says, you should have called Paul, his feelings are hurt. Yeah. He actually believed that he and Paul were something like friends and had a code and had an understanding. And although he acts like, hey, these reporters are always selling us out. He actually is hurt that Paul did. I, I, I remember the first time I saw that movie, every time I've seen the movie, that little moment, you should have called Paul. It's why we love Mark Ruffalo so much in mm -hmm. everything. It's why we as a culture love Mark Ruffalo uh, because he finds these moments of human connection. He finds these moments where you see that as an actor, he has thought about this, he's internalized it, and he's available emotionally to know that even the tough cop's feelings could get hurt by the hard-bitten reporter guy. But even that dude who can have his feelings hurt like that can't go and make love to his wife. Maybe he doesn't feel he's earned it because he hasn't solved the case. Maybe he, he can't allow himself to take his mind, I, you know, but for whatever reason, he's anchored to that table and, and cannot refine the heart of who he of who he is. And um, it's it's a sign of the as I say, the general state of a certain kind of man at a certain kind of time in a certain kind of country. From these certain kind of men, here's Moray Gates talking about the betrayal of women 
in Zodiac. One of the criticisms I've heard of the movie is its lack of women. And I think that that's a false criticism. I always I always like like to shit on movies by men that don't do well by women. And I don't feel like this should be lumped in that pile as a as a definitive like I will call men out on their shit person. Um, <laughs> there are there. The women are not the main characters. And that's that's the point is these men pushed all these women so far out of their lives and you get these beautiful moments with the victims and they're they feel like fully fleshed out women who then get snuffed like the the one at Lake Berryessa that girl was awesome she yes. was like giving her boyfriend shit she was um you know she's like we've been here before you've told me this story you, you know like you know story. you know who you know who this girl is you know you've anyone who's dated like an intellectual boy in college knows who this girl is and <laughs> and um they you know the in the i think it's i can't remember now if it's in the intro to the book or if it's in the special features but fincher talks about why he hired some of the women that he hired and it it really was because he wanted he knew he had one scene with each of these women and he wanted something really layered out of them and so that's what he looked for in his casting and i think you i think you really see it and i don't know that if it didn't care about the women that he would go to that level of specificity in what he was looking for in performance. Hey, come to bed. I'll be up in a minute. I need to make a phone call. Not many basements in California. Basement for future use. I tried. I'll have Vallejo and uh, Napa check with their city planners. Get some sleep. Uh, yeah, sure. Toski and Armstrong find themselves walking into another humming social space, only to be seated for a sermon from a host narrating the thoughts of a madman. The chimes of Christmas orchestra replace the waves of rotary phones, and now the dulcet tones of Brian Cox's Melvin Belli, a welcome return, in fact, signal that we're in his opulent home. One of the stars of Zodiac, Donald Logue, remembering what it was like to be on the film and about the exposure to this kind of phenomenon. A serial killer in dialogue with the media. Man, now that that because I I was literally out in the woods just cutting, um, clearing roads and doing this right now, and I ran in here, and now that I'm I'm on this journey with you, and I'm thinking about oh Brian Cox, Ugh. talking to him, and then the smugness of you know the the. Uh, the smugness of that world that and the way I, I think I didn't know as a child I'm, I'm trying to think of the first time I saw something that was patterned on the the Z killings and um, the idea that I'm tr- and you can probably help me in terms of and maybe it was bullet or dirty Harry or um, dirty Harry's the the closest um the closest thing where someone, but when someone's writing to a newspaper and taunting. Yes, that's the one. And putting puzzles and doing, when when a killer does things like that, that 
That is so chilling. And as a child, the first time I came across, because I was too young. Dear Melvin, this is the Zodiac speaking. I wish you a happy Christmas. The one thing I ask of you is this, please help me. I cannot reach out for help because this thing in me won't let me, thank you. I am finding it extremely difficult to hold it in check and I'm afraid I will lose control again and take my ninth and possibly tenth victim. Melvin, he's reaching out to you. Absolutely. Inspectors... Bella has a taste for playing ringleader to this kind of circus and ensuring that if the police do find this man, that he'll become part of the stable of high-profile clients that Bella already represents. Mark Ruffalo's Tosky is cynical and wittily antagonistic here. Armstrong is decent and fair, though the direct intensity of Anthony Edwards's eyes are unforgiving. Absolutely. Inspectors, he sent this letter directly to my residence. It is a cry for help intended as a private communicator. Which is why you contacted the Chronicle. The people have a right to know. Toddy? When did the letter arrive? In the middle of last week. It is my belief that he only penned this letter because he couldn't get through to me on the Dunbar show or here. He tried to contact you here? Several times I was out, but he spoke with my housekeeper. Didn't leave a number. He's kind of crafty like that. Do you mind if I speak to her? Not at all. But the real story is the letter. I'll be back. She's right this way. Inspector Tarski, it is my belief this is a window into this man's soul. Killing is his compulsion. Even though he tries to ignore it, it drives him. It's in his blood. Could be, or maybe he just likes the attention. Maybe he just likes the attention. We'll never know. As the swatch of Paul Stein's bloodied shirt dangles from Melbourne's pen, it's a Rorschach test. What do you see? Madman? Criminal genius? Terrorist? One thing's for sure. He knows how to capture your attention. That's all for episode 9 of Zodiac Chronicle, Taurus Part 1. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, though, Unplugged Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy, the Duff of Los Espinas. Our companion I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers and pins are available through our merch, and the art is done, of course, by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time. Good. Bye.